0: Hello, my name is Mitchell Som. Um I am an immigration consultant for Graduate Placement Services and EB3 International Advisors. And today I am with uh, attorney Steve Smalley. Um, Mr. Smalley has been practicing immigration law for 23 years. Um, he is a, a lawyer of Ogletree Deacons Law Firm, um, and I'm going to uh, let him take it from here.
1: Okay, Well, well thank you Mitchell. Uh, as you mentioned, my name is Steve Smalley. I'm a partner in Ogletree Deacons. We are uh, one of the largest immigration practice groups of any firm in the United States. We have about 70 uh, full-time lawyers practicing business immigration and about another 200 uh, support staff and support professionals who assist us. Uh, I've been with the firm for almost 20 years. Uh, I'm based in the Raleigh, North Carolina office, and we handle work for uh, clients not only all throughout the United States, but also throughout uh, the world by working with a lot of multinational and international companies.
0: Great. Well, thank you very much for your time today. I uh, really appreciate it. And uh, the purpose of us being here and having this podcast is to uh, talk to Mr. Smalley a little bit about EB3. So he's going to I- introduce us um, to the EB3 program and the EB3 visa Um And so we'll we'll just go ahead and dive right into that. So, Mr. Smalley, what exactly is EB-3 and what are employment-based visas?
1: Okay. Well, there's several different ways to obtain immigration to the United States. And there's a couple of different ways to divide this. So there are temporary work visas and temporary visas, such as visitor visas and student visas, and visas that allow somebody to temporarily work for an employer. And then there's the other types of visas, known as immigrant visas, uh, and immigrant visa applications are also commonly known as an application for a green card. In the case of the EB-3, the EB-3 is shorthand for the employment-based third preference immigrant visa category, and that's where EB-3 is more well-known among uh, employers who typically will sponsor professionals for a professional temporary visas. Uh, but the visa category as I mentioned can be used by uh, other companies to employ persons uh, or to sponsor persons for positions that are also in unskilled roles or in non-professional roles Uh, and I'll stop here because I don't want to keep running on and on Um, so why don't you we can talk about the three steps in this process, okay? Um, but ask me some other questions so we can sort of break it up a little bit.
0: Okay, and, and just going back on what you were saying about the types of employers that sponsor, for the other workers category um, that is specifically unskilled, um, generally what types of industries are you uh, talking about here? Based on my knowledge, um, the poultry processing industry is is a big industry that will utilize um the eb3 other workers category in order to uh, find employees that are that are willing to work in these positions uh, in which they cannot find uh, citizens or green card holders to work in okay
1: um the 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 eb3 program and the employment-based uh third preference program uh, whether it's for skilled professional or unskilled uh, jobs requires that the employer conduct a labor market test and the employer has to demonstrate that it has gone out into the open labor market uh, placed advertisements and and done recruiting including print advertisements uh, to try to find workers to fill positions and in order to proceed forward with the first step in a three-step application process the employer has to be able to demonstrate that in response to this recruiting it's not been able to find qualified American workers for this particular position. So the EB3 category works very well when employers are seeking to fill uh, positions that are in short supply of, of workers uh, and where it's hard to find American workers to fill those roles. So as you mentioned the, the poultry business is an area where it's been very difficult to find qualified workers uh, to fill those positions. Uh, Likewise in the positions of of janitorial and and cleaning workers is another area where there's a lot of open jobs and employers are are finding a hard time locating workers. Uh, Another field as as an example where um, there's a lot of jobs and not as many Americans to fill those positions is in nursing, and uh, I guess a fourth category would be in um, in in some areas involving health professions, uh, such as home health aides and uh, and licensed pr- uh, licensed practical nurses too.
0: Okay, now um, this is kind of going off a little bit, but based on everything that you just said if someone is a professional or let's say someone is um, has been working on their OPT for Apple or a very large company and is very qualified um, very educated, would they still be eligible to participate in the other workers uh, program if they had an employer that was sponsoring them?
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, the fact that somebody might be highly qualified and possess a degree or even several degrees uh, does not disqualify them from participating in the EB3 other workers category and what we're talking about in the other workers category is uh, there are subsets of the EB3 uh, immigrant visa category Uh, some are for skilled professionals some are for uh, unskilled uh, positions and the difference between those two is is based upon what the job requires not based upon the skills that the person possesses Uh, so if a if the job itself doesn't require any prior experience requires very minimal prior experience uh, then it can still be occupied and somebody can still be sponsored in that category even if they have uh, a a lot of experience or, or degrees that may far exceed the requirements for that position
0: Okay. And so if someone qualifies for this and applies for it, um, then ultimately they have the opportunity to receive a green card at the end of it. Now, um, they can also apply for their immediate family members, correct?
1: That's correct. That's correct.
0: So their spouse and their children, um, I guess, under the age of 21.
1: Yes. They're, they're unmarried children under the age of 21. So the the three steps in the the process, the first of those is known as a PERM or a labor certification. And that's where the employer has to go out and do a labor market test and recruit and try to find persons to fill that position based upon uh, recruiting that geographic labor market and using the prevailing wages in that area. Um, And assuming that the employer cannot file or cannot find any qualified American workers, then the employer can go ahead and file step one in this three-step process, known as PERM or labor certification. If the and that application is filed with the Department of Labor, if the Department of Labor determines that the employer has has exhausted its efforts to find qualified Americans in the labor market, and there is a shortage of American workers, uh, then the Department of Labor will issue a labor certification. The labor certification is a more or less acts as a permission slip that then allows the employer sponsor to petition the immigration service uh, for an immigrant visa in the EB3 category and in the roles that we're talking about today that would be in the immigrant visa categories involving EB3 unskilled or other workers Uh, the second step in the process known as an I-140 immigrant visa petition uh, can be filed with the immigration service once the perm has been approved by the Department of Labor. uh, And if there's not a backlog in the green card availability, uh, then the employee or the the candidate who's being sponsored and his or her family members under the age of 21 are able to file the final stage application to adjust status uh, or to change their status from whatever currently they hold in the United States to applying for a green card simultaneous with the I one forty petition.
0: Okay. And if they are outside of the United States they're able to um, able to apply as a dependent as well,
1: correct? That's correct. So if an applicant or the applicant's family members are outside the US, um, then upon the approval of the labor certification uh, the employer can file an application for an immigrant visa uh, with the Immigration Service, and that has to be approved. And then once that's approved, then the application will be transferred to the State Department, and that will ultimately result in uh, the family applying for an immigrant visa at a U.S. consulate overseas. Okay. Um,
0: and And what is the difference exactly between applying... For an adjustment of status in the United States, while you're already here in, in status, um, and consular processing, if you are not on, uh, not in the United States in your in your home country,
1: there are several differences. Uh, the first of those is very practical, which is if somebody is not physically present in the U.S. in valid and lawful status, then they're not eligible to apply for adjustment of status while they're here. Um, for those people who are here. Uh, in the United States at the time of, the, of that the other green card steps are ongoing, uh, then by applying for adjustment of status, they can simultaneously apply for two other applications. Uh, one of those is an application for an employment authorization, also known as an EAD card, and the other is an application for a travel document uh, known as advance parole. Uh, and from the time that uh, a person applies for adjustment of status uh, and together with that also applies simultaneously for an employment authorization document, uh, they can typically receive that EAD card and begin working in the U.S. within anywhere from about four to six months. Okay. If a person, on the other hand, is outside the U.S. Uh, at the time that that these applications are ongoing, they won't be eligible to apply for temporary work authorization. they will have to actually wait until the immigrant visa petition is approved and then uh, it'll it'll be a period of several months while the application is being transferred to the State Department and we can apply at the State Department uh, to the State Department's National Visa Center uh, for this final step in the application process. Uh, for persons who are applying overseas through consular processing, that entire process has to be completed. They have to be interviewed at a, at a U.S. consulate overseas and given an immigrant visa to enter the U.S. And as soon as they enter the U.S., uh, then they'll be able to begin work in the position that was described in the EB-3 application.
0: Okay. And, and for someone that is adjusting their status, once their I-485 is filed, uh, do they need to continue maintaining their underlying visa status if they are on F one or J one? Do they need to continue maintaining their underlying status until their four eighty five is approved, or at that point, um, w- 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 how would they proceed?
1: Sure. Um, once somebody, if if. If somebody is in valid status and some other type of visa such as F1 or, or H1b or some other type of visa status, when they apply for the i-485 or the also known as the application for adjustment of status, then as soon as the, as the application for adjustment is filed, uh, then their status will, will become and remain lawful based upon the adjustment of status filing as long as that application is pending. And they do not need to extend their F-1 or their underlying temporary visa while the adjustment of status application is pending. Upon the approval of the adjustment of status application, their status will change over to that of a green card holder or a permanent resident.
0: Okay. Um, Now, uh, I know that the I-140 part of the process is... is, um, done with an attorney, so is it legal for the employee or the applicant to pay for the uh, legal fees during this process? Um, understanding that the the visa beneficiary is not paying for any part of the labor certification process, um, is it legal for them to pay for the legal and government fees of their I-140 and their adjustment status? Right.
1: As you point out, there is a difference here. Um, the Labor certification must be paid for by the employer, uh, and the employer has to pay for for all the recruiting costs that are associated with that. When it comes to the I-140 immigrant visa petition and the I-485 application for adjustment of status, uh, all of those fees, it is perfectly lawful for the employee to pay those, uh, both legal fees and filing fees and any costs that might be associated with that process.
0: Um, now, in terms of, you know, getting your visa approved in the end, whether you're adjusting your status or you're outside of the United States and you're processing th- through the consulate, um, h- how does it work exactly and how is it different from maybe applying for a, an F-1 visa or a J-1 visa or even a B-1, B-2 visa? What makes the employment-based category um, different? and and. Um, Obviously, it's very common for someone to get denied an F-1 visa, for example, um, or even a B-1, B-2 visa. Um, Would you say that there's a difference between that and, um, you know, that of someone applying for an employment-based visa?
1: Absolutely. Uh, When a consular officer is reviewing an application for an F-1 visa or for a B-1 visa, uh, one of the first things that they look at is, whether that applicant has substantial ties back to their home country uh, that will cause them to return back home upon the conclusion of that temporary visa. So in the case of a B-1 uh, which is a business visitor visa or a tourism visa, um, the, the officer is very concerned that somebody will return back home and, and has those ties, and likewise in the case of, of somebody who's applying for an F-1 student visa. Uh, in the case of an application for permanent residence or a green card or immigrant visa, all three of which are the, really the same thing, just different words that are used for those, uh, and, and an officer is not evaluating whether somebody is going to return home because obviously the intent of the applicant is to live and, and reside in the U.S. on a permanent basis. Uh, so it's, uh, it's much, much more likely that uh, the consular officer Will approve that application, and they have a lot less discretion to deny the application as long as they, as long as the applicant doesn't uh, doesn't have any previous immigration violations or anything in the applicant's history that might uh, disqualify them from entering the U.S.
0: Okay. Um, and if they're already in the U.S., um, I know just based on talking to some of my clients. <coughs> Uh, one of the main things I run into is uh, some people will have worked unauthorized (coughs) in the United States while they're here on a Mm non-immigrant visa. How can that uh, unauthorized work affect their application?
1: Sure. If somebody has been in the United States and worked without authorization, uh, then that's considered to be a visa violation. Uh, If somebody has worked without authorization for less than six months uh, since entering the U.S., then the law will provide some forgiveness for that and will allow somebody to continue to adjust their status if they've worked without authorization, but only if they've done so for a period of less than six months.
0: Okay. And just in terms of timing of this process, um, specifically the timing of, um, you know, responses from USCIS for all of these um, legal filings, um, how does that work exactly? Based on my understanding, um, it's kind of always changing, um, the the processing times for these uh, different um, applications and filings um, so based on your experience what do you think about the timing it's, it's not necessarily um, consistent with every case correct
1: that's correct there is a lot of variation uh, do you want to get into PERM or
0: not um, I, I guess more specifically um, like the I-140 um, could you explain a little bit about premium processing
1: sure um, Yes. The the I-140 and the I-45 are subject to a a pretty broad variation in terms of processing times, and those processing times tend to to grow and shrink depending upon the USCIS workload. Uh, When we're filing an I-140 petition, uh, which can take anywhere from 6 months to 12 months under regular processing, we also have the option of filing uh, using the USCIS premium processing program so instead of six to twelve months for the I-140 immigrant visa petition that can be adjudicated in fifteen days uh... and now that that, that that's adjudicated in fifteen days in, by, by the immigration service in, ex, in exchange for an additional government filing fee uh... when it comes to the I-485 or the adjustment of status application uh... that also can vary uh... and the Immigration Service will not agree to premium process that application. Uh, but what is pretty constant is typically, even though the I 45 might take a year or more uh, from the time of filing to the time of approval, uh, and under a new USCIS policy, they're calling a lot of those applications in for a personal interview. The, the nice thing about that application is once you file the I 45 or the immigrant visa petition. The application for adjustment of status, uh, you can, as we mentioned before, also apply for employment authorization, and that's typically issued within about a three to five month process, and that's pretty consistent.
0: Okay, and that interview that you were talking about, um, could you explain uh, any any details of that interview or how it typically um, goes? What exactly is the officer, the USCIS officer, um, asking and kind of? Trying to determine from the from the visa beneficiary,
1: um, the the officers um, that interview immigrant visa applicants uh, will 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 do the will, they'll conduct these interviews at the at a local immigration office and it's typically conducted only by a single officer in their own personal office. The interviews tend to be relatively short, about fifteen to twenty minutes. And in that interview, the officer will review all of the application materials that have been submitted by each applicant, uh, confirm that the applicant uh, has not engaged in any conduct that might disqualify them from uh, becoming an an immigrant visa or a green card holder. And and that that conduct will typically involve uh, visa violations previously, Uh, or any criminal type of violations. Uh, And so as long as an individual who's applying for permanent residence has complied with U.S. immigration law and has also complied with U.S. law generally and uh, maintained a a, a good, clean criminal record in the U.S., uh, then that's going to be a major focus of what the immigration officer is looking at. The other is... um, the other aspect will be upon the employer's job offer and ensuring that the employer is a legitimate company, uh, that there is a job available to the immigrant visa applicant, uh, and that the immigrant visa applicant intends to work at that job once the green card has been approved. Okay.
0: Um, and just the last question that I have for you is: Fluent English required for this visa? If, if you're, um, you know very basic level of English, have a very basic level of English, um, could you still apply for EB3 or an employment-based visa and and get approved?
1: Sure. As we started out mentioning, uh, if uh, if somebody is eligible to be sponsored for the EB3 immigrant visa by an employer, even if they're overseas, even if they've never worked for that employer, and uh, English is not a requirement for the uh, for the, EB, in, in order to qualify for the EB-3 immigrant visa. Uh, for most jobs in the U.S., though, conversational English is needed to work in those positions uh, for safety and for training reasons in order to ensure that somebody will be able to communicate effectively with the employer. Uh, so I, I think that uh, it's important that even if knowing English very well is not an absolute requirement for the job, it's important uh, for prospective applicants for the EB three program who seek to work in the United States, uh, to have a good understanding of English, to at least a basic understanding of English, so they'll they'll be able to be an effective employee in their new job in the U.S. Right, correct.
0: Um, and and just my last question, um, based on my knowledge, again, uh, EB three had was started in 1990, and hasn't really changed too much since then. Do you uh, think? You know, with the current administration um, and, and the current political climate and um, all the stuff going on in immigration right now, do you think that the employment-based third uh, preference is going to have any sort of changes um, or has it had any changes recently?
1: We've not seen any uh, indication that either the Congress or the new presidential administration is seeking to change or to in any way restrict the EB-3 program. Uh, This program, as you mentioned, has been ongoing for many, many years uh, and has been uh, pretty consistent in the way that the Immigration Service and the Department of Labor uh, have administered that program. We expect that the, uh, the system that allows employers to sponsor individuals for permanent residence through employment in the U.S., Is probably not going to change significantly, uh, and there's really been no discussion in Washington, D.C. about making significant changes to that program. Okay, great.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Um, Got some good information about kind of the legal side of uh, the EV3 visa. Um, So thank you very much for speaking to me. Well, thank you, Mitchell. Appreciate your time.
1: Thank you.